in the fall semester of my junior year in high school, my first hour class was U.S. history. Now, I remember that because on one Tuesday morning in September, I walked out of that class into the commons area, and I saw a huddle of students looking up at one of the TVs mounted on a wall. It showed a large plane, passenger plane, crashing into the World Trade Center. Those of us who are old enough certainly remember where we were on that day when our nation was attacked by terrorists in New York and Washington, D.C. Thousands died and our country has never been the same. Today is the 21st anniversary of 9-11. And our readings today, providentially, are the exact same readings we had on the Sunday after the attacks. They are fitting readings for a nation remembering such an exceptionally evil day. And these readings speak of God's response to human evil and sin. These readings proclaim the truth that the grace of God is greater than sin, that God's mercy is stronger than evil, that the Almighty is capable of what seems to us utterly impossible, bringing good out of evil and transforming sinners into saints. But I could imagine, I could imagine an objection. Somebody could point to the first reading and say, God's response to human evil and sin in the case of Israel's idolatry with the golden calf episode is to destroy them, wipe them out with his blazing wrath. And he only changes his mind when Moses talks him off the ledge, so to speak. However, the problem with this objection is that it fundamentally misunderstands how sacred scripture speaks of God. God is by nature immutable. He doesn't change. He doesn't have mood swings, uh, changing moods from happy to angry as we do. Moreover, God is mysterious. He transcends any reality we experience in this world. And so when the Bible speaks about God, it does so in, a, in an analogous way, using analogical language, um, so that the Bible uses language that we can understand in our uh, human intellects when it speaks, for instance, of God's wrath blazing up. Moreover, what we see in this first reading is that God is putting Moses to the test Moses, to his credit, passes. Right? The Lord, in his foreknowledge, knew that he would forgive the Israelites, but he chose to include Moses, or at least to offer Moses, a chance in, in his plan um, for, of mercy for Israel, right? allowing Moses to take an active role in the administration of God's forgiveness. Just as God wills that we not be passive spectators in our redemption, but to cooperate. So to hear he willed that an Israelite, Moses, would take on an active role in the administration of God's mercy. Now, in the rest of the readings, we see the triumph of God's grace and mercy, and I think most people's attention draws immediately to the parable of the prodigal son, and understandably so. It's it's arguably the most popular parable that Jesus gives us. 
But I would I would venture to say that one overlooked place where we see the triumph of God's grace and mercy is in the responsorial psalm, which is taken from Psalm 51, the miserere, as it's called in Latin, the great penitential psalm. Psalm 51 is traditionally attributed to David, excuse me, King David. Um, tradition tells us he wrote this psalm upon the occasion of repenting from two very grievous sins. First, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of his soldiers, away on campaign with his army. And secondly, after he learned Bathsheba was with child, ultimately, he had Uriah killed. David is an adulterer and a murderer. He is then confronted by the prophet Nathan, and to his eternal credit, King David repents of his very serious sin. He repents sincerely and wholeheartedly, and he composes this miserere, Psalm 51, in his, in his contrition. However, there is a temptation when we speak about David as a murderer and an adulterer. And the temptation is to say, man, what a bad guy. I mean, he's horrible. I, I'm not like that. I would never do such a thing. Of course, what David did is horrible. And please, God, none of us ever do such a thing. But we are mistaken if we think we are above either grave sin. You know, the truth is, we are fallen human beings. And we must keep in mind that old saying there, but for the grace of God go I. Moreover, this I could never do that attitude is akin to the elder son in the parable who is convinced of his own righteousness, who is convinced that he has earned his status as son of the father, that he has earned the privileges that go with being a son of the father. But in reality, he's blinded by his own pride. Pride is so deadly because it blinds us to our need for repentance, for our need for God's mercy, for our dependence upon God's grace. Pride can also blind us to the point where we see the evil in the world is simply the result of bad, evil people. The problem, as the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn so eloquently once wrote, is this. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. The line shifts. Inside us, it oscillates with the years, and even within the hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an unuprooted small corner of evil. It is in the human heart that evil and sin originates, a heart wounded by sin and the fall, and a heart that we are unable to heal by ourselves. However, God is more than capable, and he, he seeks to heal us with the remedy for evil and sin, his grace and mercy. David in the Miserere begins with the cry, Have mercy on me, O God, in your goodness and the greatness of your compassion. Wipe out my offense. Thoroughly wash me from my guilt and of my sin. Cleanse me. David gives us an image of the prodigal son the younger son, who repents of his sin and is forgiven despite the gravity of his crime. And more than that, the, the younger son is embraced while still a long way off. And 
the the father puts a robe on his shoulders and sandals on his feet and a ring on his finger. Right? The younger son doesn't lose his status as a son of the father for having sinned and repented, and so too is it with David. And in fact, this episode marks something of a turning point for David. By the end of his life, he is so transformed by God's grace that he is called a man after God's own heart. David, who once was an adulterer and a murderer. You know, in our second reading, St. Paul says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he places himself first and foremost among them because he was once a blasphemer and a persecutor of the early church as well as an arrogant man. Yet St. Paul was granted an extraordinary grace and repented of his sins. And the Lord transformed him into a saint, an apostle who has evangelized countless souls through his apostolic activity in his writings. What we see in the life of St. Paul and David is an illustration of the parables Jesus gives us in our gospel. The Lord comes to seek the lost, to reconcile sinners to the Father, and to transform sinners into saints by his grace and mercy. This is God's response to evil and sin, to seek the lost, to reconcile sinners to the Father, and to transform sinners into saints by his grace and mercy. And the message of the gospel could not be any clearer. No matter what we may have done, no matter how often we may have fallen, no sin is stronger than God's mercy. No number of sins is beyond his power to forgive. The Lord wants us all to be healed of our wounds, of the wounds caused by sin and evil in our heart and soul. But we need to be willing. We need to say, as the prodigal son did, I shall get up and go to my father, repent of my sins and receive his forgiveness. This is precisely why Jesus gives us the sacrament of reconciliation. For when we go to confession to a priest, yes, it's true, we are confessing to a fellow sinner. But when we confess our sins with sorrow to a fellow sinner, a priest, with a firm purpose of amendment, meaning we're going to try to do better, and he absolves us of our sin, well, then it's Christ himself who is forgiving us through the instrument of his priests. Moreover, because we are fallen people living in a fallen world, we all need confession, and more than just once in every, you know, every now and then. You know, the Psalms tell us that the just man falls seven times a day. The line between good and evil, Solzhenitsyn said, runs through us all. So we need to repent and go to our Father in the sacrament of reconciliation often to receive the medicine of mercy. Our readings today, they speak of God's response to evil in the world, evil that originates in the human heart. He responds by seeking out the lost, seeking to reconcile sinners to the Father, and to transform sinners into saints by his grace and mercy. Mercy for idolaters among Israel, mercy for David, a murderer and adulterer, mercy for St. Paul, an arrogant blasphemer and persecutor, and mercy for you and me. Let us repent and seek God's mercy so that he can make us into the saints he created us to be.